So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Peter Boyer. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, the first service, I said that uh, our regular preachers, Greg and, and James, are, are away. I need to correct myself. Uh, they're just simply on vacation. Um, one of them may be here, and I don't want to point them out so they can slip out <laughs> quietly afterwards. So pay no attention to that whatsoever. Um, continuing in the, uh, the summer mix series where we're looking at Luke's chapters 16, 17, 18, and 19, if we look back and, and, and review all of those messages, and I went back and, you know, pre- in preparation for this, I re-listened to all of those messages, and there's a clear theme that comes out of that, which is good, because the passages that they were preaching from had a, a theme. Not every message, but a running theme was salvation. And one of the things that I know, and you're going to see in this story today, and it has come up before, but it comes up in a very hard way here, is that salvation necessitates sacrifice, such as in the, the story. So what I'm going to do first is I'm going to read the story from the Gospel of Luke, and it's a story that you may know as the rich young ruler. And then I want to set us up for a, a deeper dive into that. So here are the, here's the text from Luke. A ruler questioned him, saying, Teacher, what, good, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept since my youth. Now when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he would heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard him said, And so who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there was no one who was left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. This passage clearly is about sacrifice. And I want to kind of wind the clock back before I get into looking into this message and I want to share with you what I, th- I think and I recall is probably the first time that I learned about sacrifice. It was in 1972. Now to set this up, I need you to understand that um, this is when I was in high school. Um, even though I would eventually follow a, you know, a, a secular career in science, my passion was all about music. I was a band geek, a band nerd. I played trombone. It does not get any nerdier than that. And I love playing the trombone. And I became quite proficient at it. Not, not the way Benga is with the saxophone. Like I, I say that he's like the Nigerian Kenny G. No, I wasn't at that level. But I, I was actually quite good. And I was in the orchestra. I was in the band. I was in the stage band. I was also in the football band. And for those of you that have no idea what that is, it's a bunch of us band members who would go to our football games for our high school team and we would cheer them on by playing. And a lot, of, a lot of the other band members who were part of this, they kind of grumbled about it. 
Not me, man. I was, I was there. I just wanted to be there. Any opportunity to play trombone, I was in. Except on September 28, 1972. For those of you who were not here, and even if you've heard of it, you had to have been here to experience this. It was the day that Canada stood still. See, that was the, the final game in the very famous Canada-Russia hockey series. Now, I'm not going to talk about hockey. That's talked about enough up here. I don't want to talk about that. I just want to talk about the obsession that Canada had at that time. And the series was tied. And here we are going to this final game to determine world supremacy in hockey. I wanted to do what everyone else was doing. I wanted to watch the game. Now, the game was during the daytime. And so offices were bringing televisions in and telling people, don't worry about working. We're just going to watch this. Schools were shutting down classes, bringing televisions into the gymnasium. The country literally shut down. And I wanted to shut down with it. Problem is, our football team was playing a game that day. And we were supposed to go. And so I was the only one to speak, just like the Apostle Peter was always the first one to say what everyone else was thinking. I was the one who spoke out and I said, you know, to the band teacher, like, I don't want to go. None of us want to go. We want to watch the game. And I, I, I tended to think at that time that I was probably one of his favorites. I, I like to think so in my own mind. Um, I was a very dedicated student. I would go there 6 o'clock every morning uh, and practice with my buddy in the, in the, in the auditorium for, for two hours before anybody else even started to show up. We had the janitor to let us in. That's how obsessed we were and passionate we were about, about playing our trombones. But on this day, it was like, no. And my band teacher knew this level of commitment from me. And I said, we, we, we don't want to go. And he calls me out in front of everyone. He says, Peter, if you don't go to this, then the whole band is not going to go. <sighs> that wasn't the way I thought it was going to go. And I had enough respect for him. And he heaped enough guilt on me that I said, okay. So I went. And others were kind of grumbling and said I should have made a more impassioned plea. We went, and my fellow band members, the football team, and maybe four other Canadians were the only ones who never watched that game live. Um, I had to find out in the evening who won that game. Uh, we won, by the way, but that's <laughs> secondary to the story. But that was the first time that I actually learned what the concept of sacrifice was. It was about giving up something. But as we're going to see, and, and I hope you hear in this message, this was still a very shallow form of sacrifice because unless sacrifice involves suffering, and by the way, I definitely suffered, and unless that is, that is done not begrudgingly but willingly, it's by choice. There was no choice in me that day. I was responding purely to guilt and to everything that was not holy. But if I think back, that's the first time I could say that I, I made a sacrifice for something. My attitude wasn't great, but I made a sacrifice. This passage of scripture, I'm, I'm titling it, Following Jesus, a Hard Teaching with an Endless Reward. This centers around this one conversation that Jesus has with this man and the teachings that follow out of that for not just for him, but for his disciples and, of course, carrying on for us. So today what I want to do is I, I, I don't want to just share and muse and conjecture. I, I actually want to proclaim, I want to warn, and I want to invite. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to look at the full gospel story on this. For those who have studied under me and, and studied any of the gospels under me, you know that I have, I, I have this fanciful approach to looking at the gospels is I don't just take one gospel. I take the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and sometimes John if the story is there too, and I blend them together and I try to respect as much as I can the words said in each so that each aspect of the gospel as told by those gospel writers comes out in the story because as it turns out in this story there was a lot of information in those other gospels we don't see here and I think we need to see and understand the full gospel story because if we put them all together it's actually what they experienced it's actually what they heard so let me just get get right into it we're, we're looking at Matthew's uh, chapter 19 Mark 10 and Luke 18 As he was setting out on a journey, a ruler ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? It's a good question. It's kind of a harmless question. I think it's a respectful way of putting it. You know, good teacher. And probably the first, you know, 15, 20 years that I was looking at this passage, I kind of felt that Jesus was giving this guy a bit of a hard rap. You know, he's coming up asking a sincere question, genuine question, and maybe he's been following Jesus. Um, we know in, the, in the, the days, the weeks, and the months leading up to this, Jesus spent a lot of time talking about eternal life and what people needed to do. And so I don't think this was a bogus question, but I think what we see here is that Jesus actually knew his heart and the, he, he took the conversation to a place where this young man didn't expect to go. Jesus' first response is, why do you call me good? Why are you asking me about what is good? No one is good except God alone. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He begins by teaching this young man to challenge the very assumptions of the things he's saying. You know, let's, let's not try to flatter me. Let, let's just understand here, it's only God who is good. That's it. And his commandments are good. And so if you love him and you follow his commandments, that's what you need to do. Then he said to him, which ones? You know them, Jesus said. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you, if you really pay close attention to the, the commandments that Jesus listed, you'll see that this is a pretty healthy rendering of the Ten Commandments, part two. The first four commandments aren't really covered in this. And Jesus was rattling out the other ones because it's entirely possible that this guy's way of measuring whether or not he was measuring up was, was he following the commandments. And that, that last one, when Jesus said, you should love your neighbors yourself, this, this should sound very familiar to the Christian ear because there was a time when someone came to Jesus and said, you know, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? And for Jesus, this was easy because he knew how everything fit together. He wasn't just, you know, the, the one who, who taught about this. He was the author of this. He, he culminated it. He, he, he fulfilled it for us. And so the greatest commandment Jesus said to that man on that other day, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy 6. And then as if, Someone in the crowd was going to say, and you know, is there, what's the next one? And Jesus got out ahead of that, and he said, 
And the, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And there he was quoting from Leviticus. In those two commandments, Jesus says, the entire law is summed up. And so we look at this list that Jesus has given him, and we'd say, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good list. But it's also a list that I have seen used when people will talk about whether or not they're a good person. Right? I've had a lot of conversations with people, some atheists, who will say, well, I'm a good person. You know, I expect to be in heaven. Not the atheists, they don't say that. Uh, I'm a good person, so you know, I, sh- I, should be, I should be okay. Many of them live lives that are probably more morally upright than, than a lot of the Christians I know. I'm a good person. Jesus is trying to get at this underlying thinking of his, not just in his mind, but what's in his heart. What's a good person? And so the young man said to him, Teacher, I have, I, all these things I have kept since my youth. I think Jesus knew he was going to say that. In fact, by society's standards, most of us would probably call this to be a pretty good guy. If, if, he's actually, if, like he, if he actually did all these things, it's one thing to say, yeah, I've kept those commandments, but if he actually did, if he actually executed that, this is a good guy. But Jesus would challenge that. Now this guy, he's been following Jesus, or certainly on this day, he's, he's coming to the master, and he's saying, look, test me. Here's all the things that I've done. What am I still lacking? And I think he expected the answer to go very differently. I think he expected Jesus to say, you know what, you've kept all the commandments, good for you, you're in. That's not, that's not what he received. Because I think Jesus knew what was still missing. I think there's a reason why Jesus, Jesus didn't talk about the first three or four of those Ten Commandments. Because those all center around, as all of them, about relationship. When someone comes to me, especially an atheist, and they'll say, well, I'm a good person. I keep all of your biblical rules. I said, not all of them. Tell me one biblical rule that I don't follow. I said, loving God. That's the number one. And everything else is just a wash. He lacks a relationship with God. It says Jesus loved him. Again, first 15 or 20 years that I was a Christian, I was teaching, I was preaching, I was an elder fairly early on in my Christian walk. This passage was a stumbling block to me in many ways. Here's what the passage says. Now when Jesus heard this, in other words, you know, the question, what am I lacking? Jesus showed love to him and said to him, one thing you still lack Go and sell all that you possess and distribute the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. How is this showing love? Well, scripturally, we show love by speaking the truth in love. We show love by challenging people. I learned this from Jesus. He challenged this man and he challenged him in ways that we've, no one else has seen. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was was talking about, you know, some of the old laws, and here's what God really meant. He would say things like, you have, re- you have seen it, heard, or you've heard it, or it has been written. You know, classic one is, you've, you've heard that, you know, that you shouldn't commit adultery. I tell you that if you even think lustfully in your mind, you've basically committed adultery. 
There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees were the ones who were there, who were standing guard, watching to make sure the people were keeping them all, which they weren't, but then chastising them for not being able to keep them all and saying, look, you're screw-ups. You will never be found worthy of God. You need to make sacrifices. You just need to keep trying harder. The reason the people on the day of the Sermon on the Mount didn't go away discouraged after Jesus raised the bar out of sight as if the 613 wasn't enough. Now it's, we're, we're going to be judged by even how we think. Are you kidding me? But they weren't discouraged. Why weren't they discouraged? It's because they all believed when Jesus challenged them this way that he believed that they had the ability with God's help to live up to that. And they were not discouraged at all. They were empowered. Jesus loves people by challenging them, by speaking the truth and then challenging them. He doesn't lower the bar. You know, the, 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 the global church went through a period of time where we wanted to make it easy for people to come to church. We don't want to offend them. People come in and they hear kind of preaching that's going to offend them. Let's soften the message. Well, you know, this is not something that our preachers ever do here. They, they don't soften the message. And I better not either. Jesus didn't soften the message. He spoke the truth. And then he challenged people. And he says, and I'm calling you higher. Here's what I expect of you. Give yourself completely to God and follow Jesus. Here is where we see the first real challenge to us. This isn't, this isn't just to this guy. We can say, so, and this, is a, this, this debate on this goes right back to the, the, the time of the writing of the Gospels. So is he saying here that I need to basically sell everything and give all my money to the poor? Is this a sweeping edict from Christ himself? He might be saying that to individuals, but I think when we look at the larger picture and we look at the writings of Paul, I think we see it's pretty clear that that's not what he's saying here, that we all need to do that. What he's saying is that we all need to be able to surrender to God and give up the thing that is keeping us from him and it's something that is hurting our relationship with him, something that's getting in the way. As one passage of scripture says, throw off all of the things that will entangle us from running our race effectively and then run that race well. And it's a race that is run in faith, faith in the Lord Jesus. Loving people doesn't mean lowering the bar and enabling neutrality or mediocrity or laziness or weak-mindedness. It is a challenge to accept the call higher, to live up to these standards. And a stand, it's a standard of sacrifice. And sacrifice, not like the kind of sacrifice that I made back in 1972, which was begrudgingly, this is a sacrifice that has to be decided on and said, yes, I am making the sacrifice. And unless the sacrifice comes with suffering, it will always remain to be a superficial kind of sacrifice. Because we may give up things and we believe we're doing it in God's name, but it might be just because we are passionate to do it. You know, I, I joke it at, at times with my family. You know, when we're, we open a loaf of bread, I'll say, I'm going to take one for the team here. I'm going to eat the crusts. For the first 10 years of my kids' lives, they were, they, you know, Dad, look at Dad. He's really sacrificing for the family until they found out that's my favorite part of a loaf of bread. So there's no sacrifice. And now they just go, oh, Dad's giving up the, the crusts. Now he's, 
he's living very selfishly when he takes those crusts. I was living very selfishly when I agreed to make that sacrifice. Yes, it came with suffering, but it did not come with a heartfelt desire to do the right thing. Next, when the young man heard these things, he became very sad and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property and was extremely wealthy. Here we have the classic inner conflict. Unless an ideology and the principles around that are actually tested and tested severely, that ideology will always remain to be a surface thing, something that we we may ascend to intellectually but not actually choose to live. We have to actually have that tested. And there is no other way, as I have discovered through the scriptures, there is no other way to test your principles than through sacrifice that leads to suffering. But it still starts with a choice. What did Jesus find lacking in this man? Well, he found a relationship with God was something lacking. And so he was helping this man. He was loving him and saying, here's maybe the last thing that is, is, is holding you back from your full devotion to God. That is love. When a friend speaks to us in love and they tell us the hard things, I hope you all have a friend like this. It's, you, you don't just share and confess everything to everybody. But I hope you all have at least one person who is so close to you in your life that you have given them permission to speak God's truth into your life and to tell you the hard things that are hard to hear, to give, you, to give them permission to say, you're screwing up right now, and to not be offended by that or feel you have to defend yourself, but to listen to it with humility. And Jesus was loving this guy. But then he did something that as a leader, you know, again, for many years, I was really questioning, Jesus, what are you thinking? Because he lets the guy go away. He lets him walk away. I was taught that's not what leaders do. Well, then I was retaught. No, that is exactly what leaders do. He saw him walking away, and, and if, this was, if this was kind of a, you know, a, a challenge, but let's see if I can get this guy motivated. And then when he starts to walk away, then Jesus would have said, hang on, come on back, let's talk about this. But that's not what he does. In love, Jesus lets him walk away. This is a hard teaching. It's a hard teaching for the man. It's a hard teaching for leaders to let them walk away. You say, but, but wait, didn't it say earlier that Jesus loved him? How was letting him walk away loving him? Well, Jesus knew that inviting him to come back and have a conversation would mean lowering the bar, which would mean lowering God's standards. And God's standards are off the charts. It would mean saying something that was other than the truth of God, and that is 100% devotion to God. I remember last year, the year before, uh, Pastor James preached a message, and it just, it was one of those, one of those, he, he had a, he had like a sound bite, if you will, in there, and it just resonated in me, and I, and I remember thinking after the ringing stopped in me, I remember thinking, is anybody else here listening to this? Did anybody hear what I just heard? Because this is powerful. And he said, our goal is not to sin less. Our goal is to become holy. Our goal is to become completely 
dedicated, devoted to God to the point where everything that we say, everything we do, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul says in Colossians. But I'd go a step further because Jesus himself challenged not just the things that we say and do, but also what we think. Can we actually say honestly that everything that we say, think, and do, we do it with God in mind? Because if we don't, whatever those things are, they're called sin because we're doing them not out of faith. And Paul says in Romans 14, all that is not of faith is sin. You're going, Peter, this is a hard teaching. It is. It's hard to listen to. But Jesus loved him and he let him walk away. He gave him the truth, he challenged him, and then he let him decide. This is the, the part of love that is probably the most difficult for me, is letting people make their own decision. And it has to be their own decision. And so what's Jesus' next response? Well, he actually doubles down. It wasn't like he then, okay, I need to soften it. This is pretty hard for these guys. They can't hear this. Now he doubles down. Jesus looked at him and said to his disciples, this is one of the reasons why I, I look at the, the, the three gospels together. Because in one gospel, you get the impression that he's talking to just the disciples. Another one, you get the impression that he's talking to the man. But when you put them all together, you'll see that Jesus looked at him and then said to his disciples, he was probably watching him go away, and then he's saying to his disciples, children, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were even more astonished and said, then who can be saved? First thing I want to do is I want to bust a myth. And there, there has been a myth that has gone back somewhere between 600 to 1,200 years. Uh, and it was a myth that was taught to me. It was something that I taught. It was something that I preached. It was found in, in books and commentaries. Um, the fact is that there is no evidence of it whatsoever, historically, archaeologically. It is just something that was fabricated by some preacher 600 to 1,000 years ago to make this hard teaching a little more palatable. And here's the way it goes, that in the walls of Jerusalem, around one side, there's this, there's this gate. It's not really a gate. It's kind of a hole. And you can actually get into Jerusalem through this hole but you almost got to get down on your belly because it's a very low hole. And if you have a camel, well, the camel literally has to get down on its knees and, and be kind of pulled through this. And if there's any baggage or luggage or whatever it is that's on the camel, you, you got to take it off. It's not going to fit through the hole. So that hole, that gate was called the eye of the needle. And so, oh, that makes perfect sense. Jesus is talking about a historical thing which we don't know about now, this thing called the eye of a needle. And if a camel goes through the eye of a needle, it's hard, but it's not impossible. Yeah, there's actually no evidence whatsoever of that. And, and I don't think there are commentaries written anymore that would talk about that. It just doesn't exist. So then, you, then you're left with, well, is Jesus speaking hyperbolically? I mean, I mean he can't actually be talking about a camel, and if you've ever been around a camel, they're pretty big, going through the eye of an actual needle. It's not possible. So he, he obviously is talking about something else. So he must be using hyperbolic language. But if you look at the response from the disciples right afterwards, they're not taking it that way. They're believing that he's talking about an actual camel going through the actual eye of an actual needle. 
Because their response is, this is impossible. How can you do this? Who can be saved? Here's Jesus' response. But Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And so I can't tell you where it leaves us, this teaching. I can tell you where it leaves me. It leaves me with the reality that I don't have to figure out how God's doing all of these things. I simply have to follow him in faith. I have to have trust in him that he's going to work that out. He is going to find a way to allow me to spend eternity with him and let him figure that out. So, spoiler alert, he did. And it it was in the man called Jesus himself because he became the sacrifice for all of us. Is it possible to be a rich Christian? Yeah, I think it is, but it may come with some responsibilities. It's about building a relationship with him and trusting him. And then Peter, as I said earlier, Peter being the one to always be the first to say what everyone else is thinking. Behold, we've left our homes and everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you have followed me, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I think it's clear from this passage and other contexts of Scripture that he's talking to the 12 here. But then what he says next is applied to all of us. And the language makes it very clear that this is applied to all of us. There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children or farms on the account of my name and for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time, at this time, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. The many who are first will be, will be last and the last will be first. Jesus leaves us with this tremendous challenge. Those of you that know Marcus, Marcus Nesto, is a fondness for using the expression, that's a hard teaching. This is a hard teaching. But when you put it in the context of everything that Jesus is talking about, it's a rich one because with the, with the teaching, the challenge, comes this promise of an eternal reward. And I'm not going to spend time talking about the eternal reward. There's lots of opportunities for us to look at that. What I simply want us to talk about is that what's required is for us to be living sacrifices, as Paul says in Romans 12. We are to make ourselves as living sacrifices. We are to dedicate our lives to him. Be sacred. Be holy. Everything that we say, think, and do, we should be able to say that we have said, thought, and done it in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his sake. And if we can't, then we still have work to do doesn't mean we're booted out. It just means there's work to do. So there are challenges here for those who are hearing this for the first time and maybe have never accepted Christ, but there are also challenges for those of us who call him Lord, who time and time again are kind of recommitted to the the concept of what grace really looks like in our life. And, you know, that song that we shared, I think the second song that we shared that the band led us in is about, you know, committing again to him. This is something we do on a regular basis in our life. 
Sacrifice has always been connected to salvation or eternal life and its endless rewards, starting with Jesus' own sacrifice and his own life. It's about God and it's about others beyond yourself. Nobody is above the group. And so let me take you back to my band years in high school. Now we're in 1974. And there was one of our band members who was an extraordinary musician. He was the lead trumpet player. And if you've ever been in a band, and I I hope I don't offend trumpet players, but trumpet players are kind of snobby. If that's not you, my apologies. Um, But trumpet players are basically kind of snobby because they're the ones that kind of lead everything. And the lead trumpet player, he wasn't just snobby, he was cocky. He was prideful. He was also a gifted uh, pianist. He was a gifted songwriter. He knew that he was good. He didn't need to waste his time coming to practices. And this one, this one class, uh, we showed up, and, and he was not there. And we just thought, okay, he's just not there. But our band teacher said, you know, he won't be joining us anymore. He felt that he was above the group, and nobody is above the group. And I wanted to be the first one to say what all the rest of us were thinking. I didn't. I kept my inside voice. I'm going, you really need to go after him. <laughs> Um, this, was a, this was a phenomenal mistake. This guy is good. We are not that good without him. But the teacher said, no one is above the group. And he was more interested in how we gelled together as a group in unity and in humility and in loyalty and devotion and dedication than he was in performance. Wow, what a tremendous message. Again, I thought my band teacher was wrong on all that. Um, about 10 years ago, I looked up my band teacher. He's long retired, and he's, he now is a jazz musician with his own little quartet. And so I contacted him, and I just said, you know, you don't know if you remember me. And he did remember me. I knew I, knew I was his favorite. Um, and uh, that this from a long time ago. And, and I said, I just want to let you know the things that you taught me. And they have nothing to do with music. You taught me about leadership. You taught me about devotion and dedication. And he really appreciated that. Uh, hearing that. And so if you've had good teachers or good preachers or good Bible teachers or someone who, is, who you've allowed to speak truth into your life, if you've never thanked them, thank them because it's, a, it's an important part of, of understanding life. What I want to do now is, as we kind of bring this to a close is I want us to look at some specific things. Yes, James preached that this is not about you know, sinning less in any one particular sin. This is about being holy. But the Apostle Paul in his writings, he talks about specific character qualities that we should and should not have and specific sins that we should not be committing. And so that doesn't mean that the bigger picture is not in force. But sometimes we don't know where to start. You might say, my life is a complete mess. I don't know where to start. My life is just a total mess. So let me just start by asking you, here are some of the things that you might want to consider. What do you need to renounce? Are you all in or are you partially in? Are you all in or are you hypocritically in? What if God asked you to give all your money to the poor? What if God asked you to quit up your good paying job to follow him and trust in his resources? By the way, I'm not answering these questions for you. This is for you to take with you and to ponder. Um, That last one I watched my sister, you know, more, more than 20 years ago, do that. She, she left a, a very high-paying job, six-figure salary back in the 90s, a lot of money, so that she could go into the mission field that God was calling her to go to. 
and live off of donations if they came. That's what that can look like. Uh, is God, what if God asked you to give up your home? I've known people who have signed over their, their homes to others just because God's told them to do that. What if he asked you to leave your family? What if he asked you to renounce a faith of mediocrity to follow him seriously? What if he asked you to renounce an, apathet- uh, renounce an apathetic and uncompassionate heart and love those who are hard to love? You all know the people who are hard to love. We have a term that we've used in our family. It's not a very flattering term, but it's a term we've used in our family. Those kind of people we call EGR, extra grace required. They require it though. And it's very difficult sometimes to love and be compassionate towards some people. Some of you, you're easy to love. (laughs) And some of you, sorry. (laughs) I'm not going to point that out because you might be sitting beside someone who's nodding their head, don't look, don't look. Is God asking you to renounce the strongholds of addictions in your life, like substance addictions or sex addictions or power addictions or food addictions? Is he asking you to give up the addiction of your approval of others or to the approval of others and what they think of you as measured by the language you use or by the frequency of checking the number of likes on your social media posts? Here's a really difficult one. My wife as a, as a Christian counselor deals with this all the time. Is he asking you to give up the unforgiveness in your heart and your desire to seek revenge or at least a pursuit of your idea of fairness? Is Christianity simply an idea that you love rather than a lifestyle that you lead? Can you say that all that you say, do, and think is done in faith that that Jesus is Lord of your life? The way to do all of this the impossible that God talks about when he says with God all things are possible yes a rich man can get into heaven and yes Jesus was talking about a real camel and the real eye of a real needle we can't figure that out but God did by solving the equation himself by sending his own son like like us in the image of sinful man to be a sin offering so that he could condemn sin in us, so that we would have the hope of eternal life. What's the gospel? I can't leave this stage without at least proclaiming the gospel clearly once and how simple it is for all of us to share. That God, the king of heaven, came to earth, declared that he was the king, and then he died for us, and he rose again to save us from our sins. And all he asks of us is that we believe in him, repent of all the things that would stand in the way of that relationship, and then follow him. Jesus renounced everything and lived 100% for God. I have an invitation to two of you, to those who have never, ever accepted Christ as Savior and Lord and the beginning of of a new walk of following him. I invite you to speak to me after the service or contact me somehow. And for those of you who already call Jesus as Lord, Perhaps it is time, as, as I've found, you know, two or three times in my life as a Christian that I have to recommit seriously again as I fully understand all over again what God has done for us.